Welcome to the third reading of The Holy Ground of Honey Creek, Reflections of a Small Town Pastor, written by Rev. I. Dean Jordan, read to you by John Jordan. Thoughts on Sermons It is hard to write this introduction to the sermons. I'm not sure why. Part of the difficulty is that now, since I've retired, I think of a sermon as more holy than I did when I was preaching them each week. Somehow God spoke to the people through me. This is an awesome thought. I purposely did not think of this too often. It was better for my soul and easier to control my ego to speak as simply, as honestly, as directly as I could. God would help the words make sense to each listener. As for sermon writing, once I had an idea for the sermon, I read books, magazines, watched relevant TV programs, talked it over with my wife, made lots of notes, and then let it sit for a few hours, preferably overnight. Somehow my mind kept thinking about that sermon even when I was involved in some other job, or better yet, resting. Frequently, when I returned to it later, my mind had sorted through the ideas and suggested an order, a pattern, to put them in. I have always thought sermon titles were important and tried to find a memorable phrase. It seemed to me that a good title helped the introduction hook into the listener's mind, and hopefully the ending would relate back to the introduction in a reminding sort of way. In between the beginning and the ending, I wanted the words to be simple, the ideas clear, and the pattern of the sermon to have a rhythm that moved it along. After the first draft was done, I relaxed, because I knew I would at least have something for the people to hear on Sunday. I wouldn't be standing there empty-handed when sermon time came, but there's still time and need for more work on it. I needed to read it again, reflect on it, delete some things, and add some things. I tried to be generous with illustrations. They are a great aid to understanding and remembering for both the preacher and the listeners. I tried to keep in mind that while I had spent several hours bringing the sermon this far, the congregation was going to hear it only once. In a first reading kind of situation, I wanted it to be simple as possible. I didn't want it to be simple-minded, but neither did I want the congregation to get fogged in with big words and complex ideas. And to always be honest, I do not recall ever saying something in a sermon that I did not believe in. When I came to something that I had a hard time explaining to myself, I let the people know, and rejoiced that the United Methodist tradition allowed for a diversity of ideas. I hope you'll gain some insight, an idea or two, from this sampling of what I thought and said over the last half century. The Eternal Mountain, November 8, 1953. The United Methodist Church, Waukesha, Wisconsin. All these sermons have been preached multiple times in many different congregations. The notes at the top of each sermon that I just read indicate where and when it was preached for the first time. The ideas in this sermon underlay most of my thinking and my ecumenicity. It was one of my early sermons in each parish. It is one of our family's favorites. The purpose of the sermon was to make clear the relationship of God's judgment and love that we might not become spoiled children of God. As we have talked with Christians about our understanding of God, we have noticed a confusion in their minds concerning the relation between the love of God and the judgment of God. Recent years have seen an increasing emphasis upon the nature of God as love. This is good. This is accurate. 
but it is not the whole picture. And if it is not to become distorted, we must see it in relation to God's judgment upon our sins. When we speak of judgment, we must lift it at once above the popular misconception of it as God's malicious punishment of those who disobey his counsels. We must put the matter within its proper context. It belongs in the company of such words as holy, powerful, wise, righteous, just, and majestic creator. These are words which apply to God, the maker and preserver of the universe. Recently, we have seen two of the science films put out by Moody Bible Institute. Through the means of elaborate, painstaking, beautiful color photography, we actually see beans and flowers growing. We saw the amazing performances of homing pigeons of bats in flight. We saw the uncanny timing of the grunion fish when they lay their eggs. We saw the delicate articulation of the human eye and ear in intricacies of the stars in the heavens. We peeked into the amazing world of microscopic life. Having seen these things and pondered them, we came to a firmer conviction of the greatness of God, a God whose mind could design, whose will could create. Such a universe is a being with power and abilities far beyond anything we might ever dream to attain. To such a one, we might cheerfully surrender our wills and promise our obedience, without thinking that in doing so, we have belittled our proud individuality. It is right at this point of obedience that the judgment of God begins to operate. Let us consider this whole matter with the aid of an allegory. In this allegory, let us picture God as a mountain guide. He is a mountain guide who knows the way to the tops of all mountains. Who alone knows the paths to the top of the eternal mountain? It is the most beautiful, the most majestic, the highest mountain there is. He knows the thrill of attainment, the joy of success, belonging to those who, under his guidance, reach the top of the mountain. He wants everyone to have the joy and success of reaching the top. He doesn't go around telling people that we have to reach the top. He gives us more freedom than that. For after all, he could carry sticks of wood up the mountain, but they wouldn't appreciate it. Rather, he paints for us a picture of the happiness to be ours as we successfully master this mountain. Thus, through the allure of the success, he helps us to choose to make the journey to the top. Some never heed his invitation. Not being forced to take the journey, they choose to linger amidst the ease and the plenty of the foothills. And happy indeed their lot seems to be, until some of them, curious as to those who went on, picked up the binoculars and see the adventurers high on the side of the mountain. Then they begin to weep and wail, to bemoan their fate, and to curse the God who has left them here in the foothills while their fellow men went on to greater heights of eternal reward. They are at this moment experiencing the judgment of God. This judgment does not consist in God, the mountain guide, forcibly punishing them by restraining them to the foothills. Rather, it consists in God's permitting them to reap the consequence of their own free choice to stay down where the grass is green and the comforts are plentiful. Yet, even in this moment of their awareness of judgment, God has not left them hopeless. Rather, in his great love for them, in his high hopes 
of their reaching the summit, he has come back down to offer again to guide them to the top, if they wish to follow and obey. Again, he does not coerce. He offers them a free choice to follow or remain behind. There are others among the host of humankind at the base of the mountain who look as the guide points out the summit of the peaks, whose hearts are stirred at the prospect of attaining the top, but the perverse pride in their own climbing abilities leads them to disobey the injunction of the guide who alone knows all the ways by which the top can be attained. Again, the guide doesn't force them to do as he says. He gives them, too, the freedom to choose, and choose they do to go their own way. So off they start on their assault, their own private assault of the mountain. They get above the foothills. Some even get above the tree line. But eventually, they all get stuck. Then, with one accord, they start to gnash their teeth and to berate the guide who would show them such a summit and then foil their attempt to reach the top. In their anger, they fail to realize God has not foiled their great aspirations. Rather, they have foiled themselves. The judgment of failure, which is brought upon their unsuccess, is a fulfillment of their own choice to disobey the counsels of the guide. But even at this moment of awareness of their judgment, God, the guide, is ready to help. Many, in their fury, fail to realize the judgment of failure passed upon them, and in their blindness fail to see the guide who has come to help. Filled with loving concern for everyone, even those who went their own way, the guide has patiently followed and stands ready in their time of failure to lead them back to the right path, if they would only heed his counsel and obey his directions. There are still others at the base of the mountain who look as the guide points out the summit and whose humility or fear or lack of skill or admiration of the guide cause them to resolve to follow him. And so they start off. They go a long way, but the way seems hard. Some of them lose heart and stop by the way. Some of them lose heart and begin to descend to the foothills. And later, when their failure becomes apparent, they curse the judgment of God which condemns them to failure. They don't realize that their failure is the fruit of their own choice. But unknown to them, the guide sat down beside them to wait till they are ready to listen and then to encourage them to try again. Unknown to them, the guide guarded their descent that it might be safe, that he might be near to lead them up again. Some in this company gain confidence as they climb until they become dissatisfied with the guide's leadership. They think they can do better on their own, so they strike out alone. It is not long before they find themselves in the same plight as those whose pride caused them to start out on their own from the very beginning. They, too, curse the judgment of God by which they get stuck on an impassable ledge, not realizing that they chose this consequence when they chose to disobey him. But again, as ever, God the guide is awaiting to aid those who will trust in him, and carefully he leads those who now choose to follow off the dangerous ledge back to the pathway of righteousness and success. It is clear from what we have seen in this allegory that what we know as the judgment of God is not a malicious punishment of those who fail to follow God's lead. Rather, the judgment of God is to let people suffer the consequences of their own choices. Not incidentally, this is a consequence of our freedom. 
The judgment is rendered at the moment of decision, at the moment of deciding to stay in the foothills, or to strike out on one's own, or to give up, but it is not recognized as a judgment until the consequences awaken us to our error, until we are poignantly sorry for not leaving the worldly pleasures of this life behind, or painfully clinging by our fingernails to an increasingly impossible precipice. Thus, from the viewpoint of the climbers, of humans, God's judgment appears in the recognition of their own failure. This reaction to this recognition of their failure varies. Some blindly refuse to see that they are suffering the consequences of their own choice and bitterly complain against the God who lets them suffer here on the face of the precipice. We have all seen such. Some trust God again, not because they are willing to admit their impotence, but simply to gain time to try again on their own. It is not long before they are back on the precipice, despairing and desperate for help. Some recognize their impotence and put their trust at last permanently and securely in the hands of the guide. These have learned what we have learned this morning, that there is no reason to be ashamed to ask God's help. We cannot do what he does without him. With him, he'll make us, as one of his children, heirs of his greatness. But what does God do after his judgment? We have indicated that he leads carefully to success those who have chosen to follow him faithfully. Those who have rejected his aid he carefully follows so as to be ready to save them and to lead them to the pinnacle of success as soon as they are willing to patiently follow. This is an evidence of God's love. Will he lead to the top even those who wait until the last moment before fingers slip and they start to fall into oblivion? Yes! But do such ones deserve it? Let those among us who have not already been saved from that mountainside be the first to say they do not. Not one of us has any hopes of reaching the top of the eternal mountain if we are to get there by our just deserts. It will only be because time and time again after calling down failure, God's judgment, upon ourselves by our refusal to obey, we have found God patiently and lovingly waiting to save us and lead us back to the path toward the top. Well, how about the ones who wait until their grasp has loosened and they have fallen into oblivion? We can't say for sure. No one has returned from oblivion to tell us. We must conjecture on the basis of what we know of God's character and of human nature. First, there is an old view, widely prevalent many years ago, of eternal punishment in a blazing furnace of fire and brimstone, of an eternal punishment in a land of never-ending frustrations. This view must be ruled out because it is not in keeping with what we know of God's character. He is not one to permit endless and purposeless torture. Second, there is the view still widely held that one who has turned his back on God, who has let loose his hold on the precipice and slipped into oblivion, just ceases to exist. A third view that has found increasing favor in a time when God's love is our paramount concern is that even they who lose their grasp and let go are not lost. Rather, God sustains them in being until they are ready to freely choose to follow God. In the words of our allegory, when the climber slips and falls, 
God picks them up and puts them back on the ledge and keeps them safe till they choose to follow the guide. But enough of this. Let us leave this conjecture behind. First, because it is only conjecture. Second, because what happens beyond death is, in a sense, beyond our control. So let's go back to the living present. We have seen the judgment of God operating in permitting humans to bear the burden of their own choices. Let us note carefully that there is a great difference between this and actively participating in their punishment. Or, in the words of our allegory, there's a great difference between, on the one hand, permitting people to get on a perilous ledge when they refuse your advice, and on the other, sneaking up behind them and shoving them off. God is just. God permits us to suffer the consequences of our own free choices, but God is not malicious. God doesn't push us off the ledge. God doesn't compound our error by giving us more trouble than we've asked for. Just the contrary. It makes God very sad when anyone chooses the pathway to failure, and in love for them and concern for their success, God will go to amazing lengths to save them. Now, what are the consequences of this for our lives? First, it means we will start recognizing sin for what it is, willful disobedience to God. Sociologists may talk all they want about the effect of environment upon individuals, the effect of the slum and poor family life upon the production of juvenile delinquents, but they cannot cover up the fact that crime, delinquency, sin, and evil are the result of the free choice of individual men and women. As a matter of fact, in delinquency, I've often wondered why, if slums are so potent in producing delinquency and crime in any given family of two, three, four, or more children, only one becomes a criminal, and the rest become decent citizens. Second, it means that recognizing the sinful of this world, the thieves, the harlots, the gluttonous, the avarice, the proud, and the selfish, are suffering from the consequences of their own free choice. We will not rush out to push them over the cliff into oblivion, but will stretch out our hands like the guide does to save them, if they so desire. You may apply this as you see fit to the problems of the courts of this community as they deal with delinquents and criminals, the churches of our community as they seek to carry out the will of God amidst the clamor of everyday life and failure, the homes of our town as in them are reared the inheritors of our faith or fear, our failure or our victory. But apply it as you will, remember, that you yourself are judged of God. And were it not for God's mercy, you would suffer the agony of failure rather than harbor the undying hope of victory at the top of the eternal mountain. Amen. 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 This ends the third reading from the book, The Holy Ground of Honey Creek, Reflections of a Small Town Pastor, written by Rev. I. Dean Jordan. Thank you for listening. Till next time, I'm John Jordan.